Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know what you have done Good evening and welcome to Stop Child Abuse Now show. This is scan number 3305, 3305. I'm Carol Levine, I'm Vice President of NASCA. And tonight we're going to have a really, really wonderful guest and I'm just so happy that he is here. And uh, his name is Thomas Edward, and he is from Sacramento, California, and he is an abuse survivor and an activist who is a real heavy-duty activist, and I'm just so happy he's here. He's the founder of Safe Place for Men. Now, all you guys out there who are listening and afraid to call in, I see Phillip's here. He's not scared. He's here. Um, I want you to really listen to this man because he's a, a wonderful leader. He truly is. And I'm just hoping that people will call in. And the number here is 646-595-2118. That's 646-595-2118. Now, what I'm going to do here is read the uh, mission statement, and then right after that, we're going to go into the show. Okay. Okay. We have a singleness of purpose at, at NASCA, and that is to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so two different ways. Number one is educating the public, especially as related to getting society over the taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting the facts to show child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. And number two is offering hope for healing through numerous pairs and providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Now, I speak many times about prevention because I very much believe in prevention. Um, And I do believe that if parents had more information and took the time to uh, even find out more about child abuse and then educate themselves and educate their children. Just maybe, maybe they would put that dent in the statistics of child abuse that I speak about so often. And that is my hope, okay, that someday that happens. We cannot stop child abuse, but we can certainly teach our children so that they don't become a statistic, okay? That's enough of my mission statement. Um, so tonight, again, we have Thomas Edward here, 
And I'm going to ask him to get right into his story. There's a lot to talk about. And um, so, Thomas, um, go right ahead and, and start your story from the earliest part you want to speak about, and then we'll talk about what you're doing today, okay? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Oftentimes I get asked that question. It's like, where does your story start? Where does your story begin? And oftentimes when I'm, you know, working with survivors, I, I tell them to just start where you're at. And then we'll move backward and we'll move, and we'll move forward because when we're talking about, you know, the sexual abuse, there's just so many facets and so many pieces to it. Sometimes it can be overwhelming, right? And so it's like, okay, just start with where, where, where you're at. Now, so for me, when I, you know, think about my sexual abuse, it started kind of at an early age or what I can remember. And so that was around age um, six and it continued uh, into my teen years, 15, whatever, 16 years. Now, I say that kind of with a, a caveat here, um, because there's one thing when we talk about sexual abuse and our brains are just wonderful the way that they protect us. So if you were to ask me, you know, well, kind of what was going on between ages six and let's say 15 or 16, I couldn't tell you, right? Because my brain had blocked out many of, I'm going to say the major traumatic issues of the sexual abuse. And I can even, I can even see myself um, at age six and I can still remember like before there was blackness. And I remember I was, I was outside and uh, it was a summer day and there was a tornado coming because we lived in we lived in the in the Midwest, and there was a rainbow, a rainbow in the sky. I had my blue Star Trek little shirt on, <laughs> and I was running around, whatever, with a little pitchfork. And I just remember that as being like just one of the the happiest times during my life. And then after that, it just kind of goes black, and that's because that's when the sexual abuse had started taking had started taking place, and so. You know, my brain is protecting me by kind of shutting that period out. All right, so move myself. Here I am, let's just say years later. And so, Karina, I'm working on um, psychology and uh, counseling degree, and I'm sitting there in an abnormal psych, and we're talking about dissociative disorders, and we're talking about how we block trauma and those different things out. And as I'm standing there <laughs> giving the presentation, my mind is starting to flood with these images and these things. And as I'm talking and sharing uh, what this means in a psychological perspective, I'm saying things like, yeah, you know, it would be like if you were sexually abused by a certain person and you didn't remember until up to this time. And that's what actually what was going on with me right in the moment. Right. And so, you know, when I think about that, I'm like, wow, how, how, how did I even do that? But I just knew I needed to get to, through the report. And so, you know, I did. And then I go back to uh, another time when some other traumatic memories actually came. And I remember I was sitting in the theater with one of my friends and we were watching this movie called The General's Daughter. I think it was one of the John Travolta movies. But anyway, it was one of those crime, true life crime movies. And I just remember they flashed a scene and they talked about the person and how they had died. And the person had been like tied to a bed. They were sexy abused and that just brought back so many memories for me that I had to jump up and run out of the theater. And so, um, you know, and that's the thing when we're talking about these, you never know when they're going to hit, right? You never know when something's going to, to trigger you. 
And it was kind of at those moments or those points, you know, in my life, you know, where I had to, you know, kind of start to take attention because it was now coming to the forefront. Right. I get that. I get that. Boy, I, I wish that I had blocked things out. I never blocked anything out. I wish my mind had done that, you know. Yeah. And um, But unfortunately, um, I remember everything. Mine started at 6'2". That's a strange. At, at six years old, exactly at six years old. Mm-hmm. And then just continued to go straight forward until I was uh, 17. And mm. with many different people, many different circumstances. So it's... um. It's ironic that uh, that the brain it, it like uh, is it tries very hard to safeguard us, you know, to put a safety net on all of those things that happen to us, and then all of a sudden, it comes forth, it comes forward, it comes out. So let me ask you something. Yeah. I let think me a lot of that has to do with yeah. Go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. Oh, you go I, ahead. I think a lot of that has to do with. Just think about this. Just think about your body has, you know, so much, I'm going to say energy, and we'll say even reserve energy, that it can only do a certain amount of things, right? And so when it gets to the point where it doesn't have any energy any longer, I'm going to say to suppress or hold on to those things, something has to give, right? And that's why I said, you know, when we're talking about triggers, it's like, okay, how could you go that long, you know, without remembering those pieces. Now, I remember some pieces, but the ones that were coming up for me were the ones that were horrifically traumatic. And it's like after walking around for a certain amount of time, it's just like your brain says, you know what, I just can't do this anymore, right? We're trying to keep you going, you're doing the job, whatever, you're raising a family, all these different type of things, and all this energy is going to these other things, so I have to let this go. I can't suppress or hold this anymore because I don't have the energy to do it. And I believe oftentimes that's when some of those things actually come to the surface. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think so, too. Let me get rid of my phone. <laughs> We're in the digital world. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I put it in a drawer in a dresser. She showed up there. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Um, okay. Well, see, that that's, I, I have many times phone calls from people, you know, phone calls from people who are in crisis and a lot of times they're coming through because uh and they're calling me because they're scared because all of a sudden they yeah. they, they get a revelation whatever you want to call it okay the flashback mm-hmm. comes forward and they don't know what to do with that flashback you know they they yeah. um because t- sometimes it can be very um you know frightening it can be a frightening type of flashback and they need someone to talk to. So I'm the night owl, and they call me from up until 5 o'clock in the morning a lot of times. I'll get phone calls up to that. Then I say, you know what, I do have to go to bed sometime in here. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so, you know, then, then I, I go to sleep. But, um, yeah. See, I never had any any type of flashback, and or not flashback, but any type of um you know, everything was right in front of me. It stayed in front of me. It's crystal clear, just like it was mm-hmm. happening yesterday, you know. And uh, I don't like that. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. Um, now, so yeah. for you, was it just constant? Was it always with you? Or, you know, were there times when it wasn't and you were still kind of, you know, living life and moving forward? Well, I my abuse started when I was six, and I li- lived in a, a house where there was a pedophile, and, and it was a year and a half of, of taking all this horrible abuse from this 
this man, if you want to call him a man, all right, please. And um, he told me if I if I if I squealed on him, he'd kill me. Yeah. And I believed him because he killed my aunt's bird. So I knew if he could mm-hmm. kill a bird, he could probably kill me. All right. So and he meant it. He meant business. And uh, finally, I couldn't take it anymore. Like you said, all of a sudden you can't take any more abuse, and something comes through. Either you know, like with the flashbacks, like you're mentioning, and with me, it just I was at the point of uh, at the age of seven and a half, wishing that I was dead. And if I was dead, I wouldn't care mm-hmm. because I couldn't take it anymore, okay? Yeah. So I told, and then he tried to run me down with his vehicle uh, when I came out of school. So, yeah. I mean, it was just like a string of things. And then living in New York, I'm from New York, Lori's from New York. And, you know, it was like I got picked up and, and taken and raped and, and all kinds of stuff and I was one of 14 and on and on and on and on and on the story goes until 17 there was, and my brother I mean just so many things so many things and uh, believe me I wish that I did have some blockage there in my memory because unfortunately I have um, a wonderful memory <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, for the good the bad and the ugly that's it there you go so um let me have Lori say hello to you. She's my co-host. I have her with me all the time. She is that good. And uh, so, Lori, go ahead and say hello to Thomas, and maybe there's something you want to ask him. I don't know. Hi, Thomas. Um, hey, Lori. <laughs> you sound full of life right now. And I was yeah. thinking, um, of course, I would love to have blocked things out, too. You know, maybe I'm thinking, this is the way I'm thinking for you that your memory blocked it out. So the personality that, you know, you were meant to have was all there and all the things that you wanted and made that person that I'm hearing on the other end has a very soft soul. That's how you come across. So maybe that has a little bit to do with it. And then when you got older and the trigger started, you were probably ready just to deal with them because you then had the tools from going through the training that you've done and what you're doing then. Um, I'm just very pleased to finally hear a man come on here that has a good heart, the intelligence, and the compassion to want to do something for other people who've suffered, um, no matter whether you remember it then or you remember it now. I find those qualities in you. That's just by what you've said so far and that voice of yours. You, you've got goodness in you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And the voice that you hear now is that six-year-old, right? So I had to go back and find that six-year-old like before the abuse. And oftentimes when I'm working with clients, that's what we're doing. Who were you before the abuse took place? And let me tell you, it's it's a lot of work, but it's like, this is that bubbly kid running around with her on that day, right, that was there before the abuse actually took place. And we all, we, we all have it within us somewhere, but it might take, you know, a lot of work, you know, finding it. And so for me, even, you know, when we talk about the traumatic memory, just because I had like nine perpetrators in my story. And so from that perspective, my brain had hidden, I'm going to say, the most traumatic ones or seemed to be the most horrific, like, you know, being tortured, cut with glass while being sexually abused, um, as opposed to some of the more, I'm going to say, 
less horrific because it involved grooming, right? And so, you know, my brain, the ones that were more traumatic, it kind of hit those, even though I always knew that there was abuse there. But those horrific ones were the ones that my brain had pretty much kind of put a clamp on so that I could actually survive. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, so. I love that you figured that out. I like what he just said because he said so that he could survive, okay? Um, I think that, you know, that's why some people, and I don't think he's one of them, but he'll tell us if he is, I don't know, but why they dissociate, you know, because they need a way of surviving also. So then the mind splits. And those people, of course we have many on NASCA that are like that who do dissociate, um, it's so that they can, you know, take, uh, you know, all of that memory and put it somewhere else, you know, because it's too much for the mind to absorb and to keep. What do you think about that, Thomas? Is that right? Yeah, no, no. I, I believe that's why I said I think this brain we have is a, it's a wonderful thing with the things that it does. And when we're looking at, you know, the neuroscience and, and those different type of things, and yeah, it, it's almost like it's protecting itself in that way, either by, you know, splitting. Some people, it's called splitting sometimes or, or blocking, uh, avoiding those different type of things so that you can continue it at least to survive and go on. Like we said, that energy, right? And then when it can no longer, you know, suspend or keep that energy level, then that's oftentimes when those things actually come come to the surface. Right, right. I have Philip here, too. Maybe, Philip, would you like to say hello and ask him a question? Hello. Do you do any volunteer work? I have done tons of volunteer work over the past, 20, <laughs> the past 23, 23 years. Um, I used to also be um, a board member on one in six, so I did that. Um, I used to have a radio show, of course, for male survivors. That's when I was back in Seattle. Um, I did conferences international and nationally. So, yes, I've done actually quite a bit of volunteer work in, in the past. Cool. That's good. That's good. It's, um, you know, it, it, people don't understand, I think, um, especially if they, they're not a survivor. They're wondering how we can do all the things that we do for nothing. That's the way they look at it, for nothing, you know. And I get so annoyed when I hear because I even hear it in my own family at times. Why don't you get paid for what you do? Well, you know, in a sense, um, what we're doing now is our payment, you know what I'm saying, is to to get out there and to do the presentations and, um, you know, things that we do uh, to try and, and bring forth that awareness to people because there's just some stupid people. I hate to say this, Thomas. Now, you know I'm kind of a rough girl. And, you know, you're from New York. And, <laughs> yes, yes. And so is Lori. She's from New York. She's from the Bronx. Yes, she is. Okay. So, uh. anyway, yeah, we're both from New York. But, you know, it's just that um, that's another way of my uh, survival, I believe, you know, is the um, being so rough and tough. That was another way that helped me, uh, you know, survive. We have another phone call here. Maybe it's a guy. I hope so. <laughs> 614 area code Who am I speaking to Oh this is uh, Oh okay This is out of state um, Out of county Out of country Yes Who am I speaking to This is Carol Levine Hello Carol It's Bob In the Wit Sundays How you doing there 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, despite the, what the doctors say about me. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we won't talk about that right now. We'll have a show on That's it, right. okay, and we'll talk about it then. Well, we have Thomas Edward with us tonight, and he's from uh, California. Yeah, but... and Yeah, and um, maybe you read some of his bio or whatever. But um, he does all different kinds. Yeah, he does all different kinds of work, okay. And um, so this is his show tonight. And so I just want to get on with that. But I'm glad you called in. I want a lot of guys to call in. You know, that's well, what I, I want. Just, I just, could I just uh, respond quickly to what Thomas has shared so far? I didn't hear one word you said. <laughs> yes, sure. I'm, lo- I'm loving the accent, so please share. <laughs> there okay. you go. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're uh, better at, the, at his accent than mine. I am. Go ahead. Go ahead. Share. Please do. Yeah. I will when I will when there's silence. Um, I don't. And Thomas, I don't have a, an accent. You do. But okay. Wise guy. Wise guy. But, go but ahead. My, there's a time delay, so, you know. Um, from my own experience, um, you're talking about those um, overwhelming feelings that were the result of my childhood terror and my childhood trauma. Now, the, the current thinking was, well, they, they end up being um, kept within the subconscious and the subconscious only lets them out, you know, a bit at a time, you know, like peeling an onion. But... Um, for for me, um, in my healing process, by healing the wounds of childhood, for me, my my um, thesis, if you like, is now is that all the energy of those traumatic wounds of my childhood got trapped in my body. They became body memories, like my issues were in my tissues. So, as an adult, around about 95, I was born in 52, about 95. I managed to get off all the antidepressants and then just uh, I've totally allowed my body to release all those trapped feelings after I'd done John Bradshaw's work as well. So it was, it was, you know, I was carrying that soul weight in my body, in my tissues, until I la- allowed my body to d- discharge all that crap. And it's, it was like somebody taking an elephant off my shoulders, my friend, absolute elephant. So I'll shut up now. <laughs> no, you know, you, you bring up a you bring up a good point because oftentimes um, people just feel that this is a I'm gonna say mental psychological thing, and but the reality is, uh, the more that we continue to to look and we think about trauma and talk about trauma, especially Dr. Bessel's and Doc's works, uh, we know that the trauma actually gets trapped in in the body, you know, also. And I remember for me, I, I went through so many different modalities. And my first one was um, I was a martial artist. So I remember um, studying at the Shaolin Temple in China. And so they, you know, however they did it, they realized that I had some stuff whatever going on with me with their uh, wise, I must say, Eastern sage. And so they put me in this room. And so it was kind of a round room. And then what they did was they actually played the singing bowls, right? And they played them whatever at these different frequencies. And as they were playing them at the different frequencies, stuff that I had not remembered about the sexual abuse actually started coming to the surface, right? It was a very overwhelming, but yet also a, a calming. And that was the first place 
and this was years ago, even before it became, I'm going to say, uh, Western, if you want to call it modality, to sound therapy, because that's exactly what they were doing. They were using the different megahertz, whatever, to help bring and surface some of those memories, you know, to the forefront, because they felt that it wasn't just trapped, you know, in the mind, but in in parts of the body um, as well. So thank you for sharing that, Philip. I really appreciate that. Well, Thomas, I I really agree with what you said, um, because for me, it all comes down to energy. And the ancient Egyptians used to heal through sound. You know, one of their one of their temples is dedicated. I think it's a temple in Abydos that's um, mm. devoted to sound healing. And when when I'm experience a feeling, like say I'm feeling anxious, my body's actually vibrating. So, and when I'm laughing, I'm, I'm vibrating as well, but at a higher level. So for me, it all comes back to energy. And the best thing I ever did, well, apart from throw my television away in '95. But the, the best thing I ever did was learn how to silence my mind and just listen to my heart because that's where I found all my own solutions within my own heart. So, yeah, it's uh, nice to connect with you, Thomas. Uh, if you're on Facebook, I'll send you a friend request. Okay, sounds great. Yeah, and cool, even right? on the, uh, whole, on the uh, whole energy perspective, um, I you know, as I'm working with clients and things, and I often share with them kind of the analogies of thinking that, there is energy that's trapped inside of you. And I say, it's, I call it negative energy. But here's the thing about energy. It wants to move, right? And so just think about when you're repressing and holding on to things, that energy on the inside is causing turmoil because the energy wants to move in the outward direction and we're holding it by suppressing it, right? And so that causes the, the chaos within our bodies yes, yes, physically yes. and mentally. Yes, yes, yes. Look at it. What's the feeling? It's an emotion. E-motion. Energy in motion. It's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that. So often people just internalize all of that and it gets stuck. I like to call it stuck. Stare at us right in the face, eh? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, no, they, they just simply can't move forward because, all right, listen here. Unless you've had the same type of experience that Thomas has, and so many people have, not just Thomas, you know, where their their mind, you know, represses, it doesn't want to bring it out until it's ready. Um, but when people have active minds like mine with the uh, constant, and probably Lori too, and maybe even Philip, you know, um, well, you remember everything because it happened, okay? That's the way it is with me anyway. It happened. And... Um, I will think about it at times, but I don't get depressed anymore. In fact, even when I wrote my book, Thomas, this is years ago now, made it to Japan, though. I'm happy about that. But anyway, when I wrote my book, it was like I was looking at another little girl who was going through all of those horrific, 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 horrific uh, abuses throughout from the age of 6 to 17. And I got pregnant and, and, oh, my God, another rape. I got raped so many times. So, I mean, if my mind, like, thought about it all the time and I held on to it and um, internalized all of that hatred, because I did have hatred, it's good, it's okay to be mad like we were talking about before, okay? Because, of course, we're going to be mad with people, right? And you're going to have feelings. 
but to internalize it so that it um, defines your life is not and who you are is not a good thing. Now you obviously was able, you know, to move forward. Even once your memory came back, as it appears, you were able to move forward because you've done all kinds of presentations and, uh, oh, my God, you were a part of so many things, which you'll talk about. And, um, you know, so and you're in a, a training, uh, what is this, turning trauma into triumph. And I see so many things in front of me that's just wonderful. Let me ask you something. Um, how many, uh, what, what exactly do you do? Someone comes to you to your program or whatever you have here, and they've been horribly abused. A young man comes to you. He's 25 years old, say, and and he knows he was abused all his life, He's and he doesn't know how to deal with it. He becomes suicidal. You too, just like I, had suicidal ideations. Maybe he suffers from that, um, and flashbacks and, <clears throat> excuse me, all kinds of things that he you know suffers from. What do you do with him? Okay, so oftentimes, you know, as clients are coming to working with me because I'm, I'm, I'm coaching, and so I always mm-hmm. let people know that, okay, so we're coaching. This is going to be a little bit different than, than therapy, and so uh, pretty much it's kind of assessed. So if a person is in what we call triage, like so they're in the acute, right, and like you said, they've got, you know, the different traumatic things coming up or acute, as we call it, post-traumatic stress disorder, then we're going to try and help them find them to either get a therapist, psychiatrist, whatever, right, to kind of stop the bleeding, if you want to call it from that perspective, especially if they're dealing with suicide ideations, those different type of things. And then during the process, they might decide to come and work with me. And usually what I do is, even if you go to the website, you'll notice I have the different, the different distinctions. So the first one is, if you're asking yourself the question, say, hey, I haven't disclosed yet, but I'm thinking about it. Can you help me? Right? So that's the first individual. Or the other individual comes in and says, hey, you know what, I've disclosed, but I'm just trying to figure out what's the next steps. Okay, help me with that. Or I've disclosed, you know, I've had a little help, maybe a little therapy, but I'm now dealing with the complex post-traumatic stress disorder challenges. Right, okay, could you help me there? And so as they come in, what I'm doing is we're assessing where they're at and then determining the type of of coaching uh, that they're actually going to receive. And I like to... um, my whole thing is empowering individuals. So as they're coming in, they get to make the choice. And here's the one thing I, I notice oftentimes, especially when people get discharged from their therapy and then they come and they start working with me. And the first question I ask them when I start working with them, I says, what does your healing vision look like? And their mouths just drop open. They're like, what? I'm like, what does your healing vision look like? What do you want to look like once you pass whatever these milestones after you work through these? And they're like, no one's ever asked me that question before. And I think that's one of the reasons that often people are still struggling because no one asks them, well, what do you want to go like? Who do you want to be? What are the different things that you want to work through so that as you come through those milestones, you can see yourself on the other side and know that you have accomplished what you wanted to accomplish. Right. Right, I like that, I like that. Um, when I get those phone calls, sometimes I get so frustrated because they're so stuck, okay? And um, if I can't, you know, help them to move forward, you know, to see in the future 
because um, I come out with things a little similar to that. Then I send them to programs because we do offer that on, on NASCA on our website. Um, we do offer that. And that's the red block that it's on NASCA, N-A-A-S-C-A dot org. And the first one to the left is programs. And you know, people open that up. They'll see, it's self-explanatory. You just keep going until you see the United States, and then you you hit, like, I'm in New Jersey. Um, even if I sound like I'm from New York, I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> I'm living here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like New Jersey. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, but, you know, I would go to New Jersey, and I'd go to something very close to where I live because it's all alphabetical. And it can be either mm-hmm. – um, you know, a town or a county, and, and you it's amazing how many programs are out there. It's true. And this is good. This is good. And I did get two, – two guys were kind enough to call me back and let me know that they found the program and they loved it, and they had nothing to do with each other. They're in different parts of Jersey. So, um, you know, going and getting help, like coming to you, you know, to a safe place for men where you can guide them, you can counsel them, you can do all the things that they need. You know, they can open up and they probably feel very safe with you. That's why it's called a safe place, I guess. I don't know. They, you make them feel. <laughs> I know you make them feel safe. Okay, and it's so good that they have um, a man to speak to, because you know, look. Men are supposed to be macho and all this stuff, you know, with women. They're supposed to be this. They're supposed to be that. And uh, so to have face-to-face with a man, is, I think it's very, very positive, truly positive, because they can feel freer. I think that's probably a good word to use, you know, freer, you know, as to how they're feeling. And, and then you can help yeah. guide oh. them. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. what I found is that I'm going to say most of the clients that I get, and, and I'll even ask them, I'm like, you know, especially if they had therapy before, and I say, well, why did you, why did you pick me? Why did you pick to go through this coaching program? They say, well, I've listened to your podcast and different stuff, and you can relate to the issues that I'm going through because you've experienced them, right? And mm-hmm. so then the program that I built is based upon that. I call it the, the ADAM, the ADAM Project. Because when you're working with me, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go through the acronym. We're going to acknowledge the abuse. We're going to define the abuse, right? So how, are you, how do you define? You know, oftentimes guys can't say, oh, I was penetrated or I was raped. I'm like, okay, so then let's find some words that you feel comfortable with, but let's not lock ourselves into definitions because as they go, their vocabulary starts to increase. Right. Mm-hmm. And then after we move through the acknowledge and the define, we go through what's known as disclosure. Right. And they're like, well, I've shared my story. I'm like, OK. So but when you shared your story, did you connect with your story? Did you emotionally connect with your story or were you like a kind of a, a robot? You just told your story. Right. And so we go through that. And those that continue the coaching, what we do is we manage. So now we're managing the, you know, complex post-traumatic stress challenges. And then I love the last one, which is manifest. Right. And so now what we're doing, we're manifesting whatever is the dream or thing that you wanted to accomplish that we're going to say that the, the, the sexual abuse has kind of stopped you. So I had one individual, and I said, okay, as we're working through these things, and that's like, who do you want to be on the other side? And he's like, you know what? I've always wanted to open my business, and I wanted to be able to retire by age 55. I'm like, okay. So I worked and coached him, and he and I, we worked together for like two years. And so um, 
You know, he felt, okay, I, I got what I needed. He was moving forward. And so then he sends me an, an email like well, about three years, whatever, later. And he says, hey, Coach T, I just want to let you know. He says, uh, I'm age 52 and I'm retiring. I'm like, what? Right? Because what we had did, we had given him the tools, helped him to build the business that he wanted to, to build, and now he was retiring. Now, when I work with you, and I just tell people when I coach, this is one of the questions I always ask. It's like, how are you going to give back? How are you going to give back? That's one of the things that's even in, engulfed and entrenched in the program. And he says, okay, so this is what I'm going to do. So he says, other survivors that come through the program, I'm going to set up a scholarship. And that scholarship is going to knock a certain amount of off for those that want to come through, he says, as long as they ask for it, right? And so what he had done, he had taken the things that he had gone through, how he had triumphed, and now I'm figured out how he was going to give back, right? Sometimes I ask guys, how are they going to give back? And they're like, well, I'm going to write a book. So they write and, and they publish a book, right? And so when we think about this whole thing, for me, it's, it's about creating, I said network, it's about creating family, right? And so, you know, as we're working, we're not doing this just one-on-one, but we're creating a family so that we have a family of survivors, I'm going to say that become our friends, uh, that we can always kind of look back to, or we're always in each other's orbit. So for me, it's, it's not just working through the things, but it's also creating something on the other end, creating the family, creating the connection, creating the support, right? So that's why I say it's a safe place for men because that's what we're attempting to build. Well, I like that. I like that. And um, you see, one thing, too, um, you know, I'm sure that they feel so relaxed with you. You have such a way, a presence about you. I think Lori had said something like this, too that you have a certain presence about you that, uh, you know, that is, is good, that's very good, and you can make people feel comfortable. And I think that it's such a good thing. We need more men in the field. We have men in the field, but we need more coaches that, you know, um, can be just like you, <laughs> you know, because you make people feel so comfortable. And I like that about you, too, as well. Let me ask you something here. Now, you were chronically sexually abused and raped at knife point and gunpoint. How awful. Um, yeah. All of this is awful, okay, that we all go through. It's, it's disgusting. It's awful, and it's just not going to – I wish there was someone who could make it all go away. Um, when did you When did you all of a sudden become aware of the fact, you know, at what age were you finally, when you – when that came through to you, hey, I was raped at knife point and gunpoint. How old were you about? So you know? those memories, and that's what I mean by saying the very traumatic memories mm-hmm. came later, later in life. Um, I would say, you know, in my 20s, and that's, that's when I actually was ended up in China. That's probably um, when a lot of them started to come forth. And so that was, that was my, early, my early 20s. But then I had stuff that didn't show up until, like, I was in my, in my 30s. Well, by the time, you know, you work through so many things, you kind of get to the point where now it's easier to accept it. And so as that memory comes up, you work through it and process, and you're like, oh, 
Okay, so that person was one of my perpetrators, one of my abusers. And as you learn the different tools and techniques, it's easier for you to actually work through those, those different stages, you know, like grieving, being angry, accepting, all those different stages because you've learned the tools to help move you through them. So now right. as later ones that, that come up that are even more horrific, it's just easier to process and actually work through them. Doesn't mean that they don't hurt. Doesn't mean that they don't, don't sting. They do also. But now you have the tools and the strategies that actually help you to move through them faster, right? And that's one of the things when I'm coaching and I'm working with, man, I'm trying to give them the tools. I'm giving them the neuroscience tools and, and techniques. That's one we call the Abra, the Abracadabra tech, technique, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so we're acknowledging, we're breathing, we're releasing, right, these different type of, type of things. So as they come, you can deal with them. Because sometimes, you know, you can't control it, right? So you're up and you're giving a presentation, whatever, in front of people, and then something hits you. And it's like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? It's like I, I can't deal with this right now. And so then it's like teaching them techniques. To, okay, let me do this. This is let me get, bam, through this, and realizing I can come back and I can address it. It's not going to just go away but I have the ability to put it right here on the back shelf until I finish exactly what I'm doing right now, then we can come back and we can address it. Right, right. That's good, that's good. I mean, you see, I I look at it almost like a a teaching process. We're survivors. Um, We're okay today. Um, Are we 100% okay today? I don't know. who, what exactly is normal? I mean, you look at things, and I, that's how I look at things. I decipher things. I think that I'm probably, if I were going to say, I'm about 95% okay. There's always going to be a little something, whether it be resentment or whatever, but I don't let it, you know, internalize. I don't internalize it. I just get pissed off, and then I move on to something else. That's what I do. But, um, you know, with people. But that's the thing, they, though. It's, it's helping people yeah, yeah. To, to realize that. So let's just say, for example, a lot of people ask me, they're, well, you know, well, you know, when will this be over? (laughs) I said, when you're no longer here, you know, because the trauma continues to act on us, even when we return to quote unquote normal, right? And and even in this world, we know um, for those that have suffered there, there's like eight different things that continually show up for us. One is reaction. One is arousal. um, One is blocking. Um, splitting, like you talk about dissociating, um, shame, repetition, and bonds, right? And so those right. predominantly eight ones continually show up in different places, you know, in our life. And so that's why, to me, it's important to give people, I'm going to say, the knowledge so that when it does hit them, they can say, oh, that's what that is. Right, and then they can whatever use the steps and stuff, whatever to to work with it, so it doesn't freak them out as as much. Like, oh, there's that shame again, <laughs> right? Right, that's coming up. But they know how to identify it, and when you know how to identify it, I'm gonna say that's about seventy percent of the thing. And now you just got to use your strategies and things to work through that. Mhm, mhm, mhm. That's good. I like that. So, um, Lori, what do you think about all of this? Um, you make wonderful sense. Um, you've got it all figured out. And I I'll, I still say, yeah, I mean, the process by which you're gaining um, what happened to you, all those memories back, is corresponding to exactly what you said. It's about how your brain 
can take things in and how it handled it. I think you're a definite asset to anybody um, who contacts you because it's I'm not not totally rare, but you are very few in number. We need more men to be doing what you're doing because men also have this problem. It's not only the women. And believe it or not, men like to go to men. They do feel safer. So I'm very thrilled um, in, in listening to you tonight with what you're saying and what you're doing. I think you're just a wonderful person. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, funny, the funny thing about this is, well, not really funny, but, you know, I had talked about before payment, right? Well, okay, so, yeah, okay, whatever. But part of the payment for, for me is actually when I'm working with individuals. So when I'm holding retreats and I'm holding workshops, and the thing is, I'm there with them, and I've created a safe place. And sometimes stuff comes up for me that I had never shared before. And now my wonderful payment is I get to share this with a group of guys and be in this place. And they get to see that I'm normal just like they're normal. I still deal with issues like they, right? And so I'm getting healing just like they are. Yeah, I get it. See, this is what we need, like Lori said. We need for more men to come forward. And I'm hoping, I think I'll run a show in December. Um, gee, that's coming up real fast, isn't it? Who <laughs> likes? It's almost Christmas time. Oh, my God. Um, but um, I'll tell Bill that I want to run a show in December um, all about men. Because we had we had this lady come on years ago, and then all of a sudden um, she disappeared. Her name was uh, Petra Luna. <laughs> that was her name. And and she came on, and she would run a, a show about, you know, how men, all the things that men go through and, and so forth, um, you know, psychologically, physically, mentally, emotionally, um, on and on and on. She, anything she could think of, I guess, I don't know. And... Uh, so that to try and bring forth men to let them know that it's okay. It's okay to cry. It's it's all right for a man to cry. Um, you know, and yet people look, if a guy is crying, a lot of times they look at that as weakness. Or why can't they just look at it as release, like I'm feeling sad and it's okay to feel sad, okay? There's nothing abnormal about a person feeling sad. I, on the other hand, can hardly ever cry because I was never allowed to cry. If I did cry, I was put outside <laughs> like the doggy, all right? And it could be like 10 degrees outside, and I'd have to go outside. I wasn't allowed to be around the family if I was crying, because after all, that's a sign of weakness, isn't it? It was also a sign yeah, of and that's being the, that's, mean. Go ahead. Yeah. No, and that's the thing in our society, a lot of those – I call them limiting beliefs are actually what stop men oftentimes. And so I would say the one emotion that men are actually allowed and accepted in our society is anger. Oh, it's okay. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to kick in the tires or punch a hole in, in the wall, right? But to actually cry or show sadness, well, then that's equated with weakness, right? No one wants to, you know, oh, well, you don't want to, you don't want to be weak, right? Because we've had that, you know, kind of entrenched in us. But the reality is the way that you actually make it through these things is to be vulnerable. And that's what no one wants to show because our society doesn't embrace the idea of being vulnerable. And yet that's where I'm going to say a lot 
of when we're talking about working through the issues comes through is actually being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. And it's okay. You see, that's, that's a, another thing. Um, men always feel like they have to be the strong one. But I, I think that it shows strength, too. Um, if you can cry, because it's healing, and it's okay to be normal. It's okay to feel. Um, otherwise, guys are like, you know, tough robots or something, and then they can't, they're not able to understand women when when we feel, you know, sad and, and need to cry, and, and then they look at us as being, you know, weak or whatever. Listen, we've been through hell on earth, and I'm, I'm looking at your bio, and it's amazing that you're here, Okay. And and same thing with Lori and I, the three of us have had some heavy-duty things happen to us. Yes, we have. And we turned out okay, all right? We're okay today. We're okay today. And, you know, I went through, I was on the street, I was into alcohol and drugs, I mean, trying to mask that that anger and mask that that sadness and, and, and all the things that people go through. So often this is the, I'm sure you have many men that come to you who are, you know, are, are drinking or, in, you know, they're pill-popping, like I used to do pill-pop, I quaaludes um, and drink. I don't know why I'm alive. And, um, you know, all these things that people do to not feel, not be angry, not, not to be sad. So often we're so sad because of, of what life has brought us, you know, in our families. A lot of times the abuse is right there in the family, as you know. And and then we go through the abuse outside of the family on top of it all, and like it, there's no place to turn, there's no place to go. And that's why some people, yes, they do try to commit suicide. I was 17. And then I did have the suicidal ideations that you have right here. And um, I did go through that for uh, many years until finally I just got so mad at everything, like I told you before the show, and I won't say it out loud. But all these thoughts went through my head, and it sort of like got rid of every time I'd feel something that was bad, like like I want to kill myself or whatever, I'd say a, a nasty word, and, and I, I'd toughen up, toughen up, toughen up. Finally, I got to the point. Um, some people use prayer. Some people use meditation. Some people use, um, uh, what do you have here, um, where you get massages and all this other stuff to relax and all this. Um, I would get mad or I would go out and run. Um, so I was I was very athletic at one point in my life, not anymore. Okay, <laughs> but I would go out and I would run. <laughs> I don't think so. I wonder what it looked like if I was running down the street. I don't know. But anyway, I did that a couple of years ago in PA. I told Lori about that. But anyway, the point is, um, you know, I would get rid of my anger that way. I would go out and I would jump hurdles. I actually did that yeah. in school. And that was a way of getting rid of stress. Now, that's a positive way of getting rid of stress. So often people don't use positive ways of getting rid of stress or anger, like you mentioned, the angry man. And what do they do? They turn to alcohol and drugs. And and if if they're married, they go home and they take it out on the family. I mean, this is one thing, too, that I went through, you know, watching all this. So many of us have. What do you say to a guy? I mean, what do you do if someone comes to you and you know that they're um, stoned or you know that they're alcoholics or drug addicts or whatever? Um, what do you do with that? Yeah, no, what I get that all the time. And yeah. the first thing that we do is 
the first thing we do is we celebrate the dysfunction, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason I, I look at it from this perspective, and the reason we're celebrating the dysfunction, because the dysfunction is what kept us alive to this point where now we can address it and work on it in a healthy perspective as opposed mm-hmm. to a dysfunctional destructive, right? So oftentimes, you know, whether it be drugs, alcohol, you know, whatever, it's like, okay, we're going to have, we're going to have a celebration party. <laughs> like, what? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. we're going to write down all the, all the dysfunctional stuff that we did, not saying that it was right or anything, but all the dysfunctional stuff that brought us to this moment that we survived. Cause I'm like, some people didn't make it. Some people didn't make it through the suicide ideations. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So you drank yourself until you passed out. That's why you're still here. Right, and so we celebrate the things that kept you alive, and now we're going to learn some healthy, functional ones to help us thrive. Right, and so when guys hear that, that's a different perspective. So we're not giving you shame and saying that you're a bad person. We're just saying, hey, let's acknowledge why we're still here, and that includes some of the dysfunctional stuff. Now let's learn some healthy, functional stuff to help us thrive. And that's just a whole different, different picture, especially when we're talking about the whole shame and removing the shame. Right, right, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I never felt, I'm a little bit different, I, I never felt um, ashamed um, of myself, okay, uh, because I somehow in my head, I guess, or in my heart of all hearts, I knew that what happened, was not normal, and it wasn't my fault. I just plain, um, I had a CPS worker say to me one time, um, Carol, this was not your fault, any of it. But I didn't really feel that it was my fault anyway, but I didn't want to tell her that. But I thought she's a good worker because she had the um, the sensibility to say to the victim or the survivor that it was not your fault, any of it, ever, ever, ever. And I already knew that somehow in my brain, but I still felt better hearing it for someone to say it was not your fault, okay? Um, Because we all do things many times that uh, we wish we hadn't have done, like when I was a teenager now, I'm talking about going way past the age of six, but in the teenage years when kids, you know, seem to be a little bit on the rough side anyway, if they're going to be that way. And... um, you know, they, they, they're they daredevils and they do this and they do that. Um, so often, you know, then they're racked with shame. That's what I've seen. They're racked with shame. And, you know, you have to remember from where you came, too. So sometimes the places that we came from sort of like becomes our fabric. And then we map it out and, and we end up acting out. Okay, and we do things that we shouldn't do. And then all of a sudden reality sets in one way or another. Either you died. I had two friends die right in front of me, okay. Or, because they were OD'd, they OD'd. Or, or you, you know, get on the straight and narrow, all right. You, you have to, like, bring yourself up and, and, and uh, realize that this isn't the way to live. You're not going to live much longer. And what got me to stop drinking was my fingers started to swell really bad and my kidneys were pounding. I go, uh-oh, I'm in trouble, okay? And, you know, I'll tell you something weird. I didn't realize I was in trouble with my drinking. I was working at detox at the time. I have two children, and but I'm a functioning alcoholic. I didn't look at myself as an alcoholic. 
didn't see it because after all, I go to work. Um, I'm taking care, good care of my children. I had left their father because he was a nasty alcoholic. And, um, you know, so I was doing all the right things, all the right things. And yet I had to come to the realization that I was an alcoholic. And uh, maybe uh, I better be a nice little girl now and straighten out, you know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Because uh, you have children. Now, in my case, having my children helped straighten me out. The people that come to you, they come to you, and they are alcoholics, just as I am. I just don't drink. My last drink was in 1981. That tells you how old I am. Oh, my God. Okay. 1981, all right? And um, I had so many um, problems yet. I was still suffering, you know, um, you know, from panic and all this other stuff, and at least, you know, all kinds of things, until I straightened myself out. Now, these people that come to you, you have something here. I want you to explain. We were talking about it before the show started. The uh, hephophobia. Is that how you pronounce that? Hephophobia. What exactly yeah, he- is that? Yeah. Okay. So let me back up a little bit. So, you know, what I think is, and a lot of the individuals, you know, that I see, um, I think that, I think that the dysfunction that they show, like whatever the drinking, whatever those different type of things, alcoholic, whatever sexual promiscuity, that I think that those are forms in which they're actually handling the shame, whether they realize it or not from a subconscious level. And even though they know, yeah, it wasn't my fault or there's something about, I call it the shame filter, still the way that we see ourselves that causes us to pick things that just make us feel maybe either a little bit better, whether I said, you know, be alcohol, drugs, or whatever it is. So there's just like that, that little piece. Now, for me, um, one of the things that I had was hypnophobia. And this hit me when I was in, oh, let's see, where was I? I think I was working for actually Microsoft or, or something I'm doing during that time. And so um, I remember I was sitting in this conference, this conference room, and there was a presentation that was going on. And there was a person who sit, they were sitting next to me, and their hand just happened to, to hit me and touch me, and I just freaked out. Now, hypnophobia means the fear of touch, right, the fear of being touched. And it was at that moment that whatever was triggered inside of me, I couldn't be touched, that that was that that was it. I I couldn't be touched. Now I'm the type of person I can be extreme, and I don't you know suggest this for 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 anyone or for everyone. Like so, I'm type of the person. Okay, let's figure out what this is and what do we have to do. So someone had shared with me um, because I had the hypnophobia. They're like, oh, what you should do is you should get a massage. I'm like, a massage? What do you mean a massage? I'm not going to let anybody touch me. (laughs) 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 Okay, I get it. Go ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But here's the the reality. The reality is we all want to be touched, right? And it's like, I didn't want to live that way. So it's like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to massage school, and I'm going to get a license in massage therapy. And so that's what I did. So I went and I worked for like, I think it was a year, a year and a half, whatever program, because I took as many hours as I could possibly get. And I worked through the hypnophobia that way. Now, let me tell you, I can remember, you know, because you're practicing on each other, I can remember people putting their hands on me and I'm just sitting there cringing and my body's tensing up. 
Yes, and thinking in my head, what the hell am I doing here, right? But as I start to continue to to work through the things and get used to it, that part of me started to be alleviated because it was something that I definitely needed. And so as I did that, I'm like, wow, this is one of the best things that ever happened to me. All right, so then we're graduating. You have to do – because in – Washington, you have to be licensed by, by the state, right? So I'm going through all my clinicals and stuff. So you're working on people in the hospitals and different type of things. And so I, I'm doing my clinical at the school. And so one individual, he comes in. And so I'm working and I do a massage session on him. And at the end of the session, he starts crying. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, is my massage techniques that bad that this person, <laughs> this guy is crying here? Whatever <laughs> oh on the table, right? How am I going to make it? <laughs> and so then he shares with me. He says, no, no. He says, he, says, he says, don't feel bad. He says, that's what I want to share with you. He says, I'm a survivor of a sexual abuse. And he says, just the way that you worked with me, so caring, it was the first time. I was able to be touched again, he says, especially by a, by a guy because I was abused by uh, another male where I felt comfortable. He's like, whatever energy, whatever you were, were given out, he says, I just felt comfortable being worked on by you. And it was interesting because then that's why I shared with him. I said, well, I'm also a survivor of sexual, right? Like, bing, right? And so um, that was then when I started. I had my own practice. And so working uh, with male trauma for those guys, that had issues with being touched. Yeah. That's wonderful. I'm, I'm so glad you were able to work through that because there are so many people, you know, that can't work through that. They're many times as women, they're frigid, okay? And, um, yeah. you know, that's just the way it is. And, and why are they frigid? It's because they were, you know, abused and maybe they didn't get the help that they needed or maybe the help they went for, maybe they had a counselor or a therapist or whatever. Um, you know, we're not always all good, you know what I'm saying? You know, and and maybe no one was able to reach her. And and, and this is but why she like couldn't stand. Said, but it's like what Philip huh? said at the beginning, right? It's it's mm-hmm. realizing that it's not just all in the brain, but it's also trapped in the body, right? And right. so as we, as we started working with people and realizing that this is an integrative approach, right? And so... When, you know, I'm working and coaching with individuals, I'm using many of those same things, whatever, that helped me. We figure out, okay, where they're at or, you know, um, I'm, I'm certified and licensed in hypnotherapy. So if hypnotherapy is the way that we can use to help whatever move us through, then, then we use it, right? And so I think that's the thing, understanding, for people to understand there's not just one way, but there's integrative ways of working and healing through issues i think that's wonderful my my husband he he died he was a part of 9-11 and um he worked in the city he was born and raised in new york and in brooklyn and uh so anyway he became he 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 was getting sick too much all right he he quit in 2005 and so he had plenty of time to breathe that nasty air so anyway, he became, he wanted to do something. So he became, a, um, he, he, wanted, he was interested in, in uh, hypnosis. So he went for courses. He had to go to um, Philadelphia and take a test. I remember that, and out of the courses. And, uh, and then he got certified. Now, I never thought, I just want people to hear this. 
I never thought that I could be hypnotized because my mind is too active, and, and I, I wasn't too, even sure that I believed in it, to be honest with you, okay? And um, and I was going to go and give a presentation, and uh, I knew that I was going to have to do it in front of police officers, and I don't know, <laughs> I I just like um, was feeling like uptight. I want to do this presentation really well, okay? So I said, okay, hypnotize me. So he turned around, and, and he uh, said, sit down, and he proceeded to hypnotize me. And at first I'm thinking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and all of a sudden I was gone. I was gone. For 20 minutes I was lost, okay? Um, and I looked at the clock, you know, before I sat down. I looked at the clock after I was, he, he was done, he brought me out of it. And let me tell you something, that was one of the best uh, um uh, presentations that I had ever done. I was so relaxed. Okay, so hypnosis yeah, yeah, a is a people, good thing. Yeah, no, it all be. hypnosis is it's, it's really focused concentration. You know, when I'm working mm-hmm. with individuals, and you know, and I'm like, you have it happens all the time, and people don't realize it. It's like you're driving down the street, and you get home, and you're like, how did I get here? Well, you were hypnotized, whether you realize it or not. <laughs> and what it simply means is that your brain was concentrating on focusing on something else, but yet right. your body was still getting you to the place that it needed to be. That's all hypnosis is. It's, it's just focused concentration. And so, you know, when I'm working with individuals, you know, I share that with them. And it's like, okay, so now all we're doing is we're working with your subconscious, kind of where your beliefs and thoughts and whatever this unlimiting you know, this limiting belief or thought that you have, and we're just, we're, we're going in and we're kind of bringing it, you know, to the surface, I say, so that you can see it, right? And then you get to make the decision where you're going to do with it. And you're like, okay, I want to get rid of it. Okay, then let's move forward and work through it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's um, whatever works, you know. And I never thought that I could be hypnotized, okay? I just didn't um, think that I could be, you know. Because my mind, like I said, and, and Lori knows me. She, <laughs> my mind is very active. I'm hypervigilant. I still have mm-hmm. hypervigilance. That I still do yeah. have. Let's see what Philip has to say. Maybe he wants to ask you a question. Is there something you want to ask? Well, I have something to say. I'm sorry that you had to go through all that abuse. And I don't know how you recovered from it, but I think it's a miracle that you recovered from it. Did you hear what he said? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, people often say that because they'll go to the website and they're like, how in the hell do you have that big smile on your face like that? How can you smile? How you can laugh? Especially when I, you know, I'm in the um, coaching sessions and I'm sharing pieces or whatever of my, my story and laughing like, and they're just, they're just looking at me, you know, with the mouth drop and, oh yeah, I've been homeless before, sleeping under a bridge and I've gone through this and, the suicide ideations, all these different type of things, right? And it's, it's one, I'm going to say, keeping an open mind. And then, but here's the thing. I'm, so part of my story, and I even remember, you know, when I had planned to commit suicide, and I remember going around to my friends, and they didn't know, and I just knew, okay, this is going to be my last whatever moments, whatever here on earth. And so I was going around to my my friends and just spending time with them. And, you know, they didn't think that was strange. And so I got to my last, my last friend and it's like, okay, after this, uh, pretty much I'm going to, I'm going to kill myself. But he picked up, he picked up on something 
right? And so we're, we're sitting there. And before I know it, I'm breaking down and I'm sharing pieces of my story. And then I'm thinking, okay, I'm good. You know, I got a chance to share it. So now I'm going to go out and kill myself. And so he says, you know, no. He says, this is what I want you to do. He says, um, I want you just to stay here, stay here with me tonight here. You can sleep on the couch, you know, whatever. And he says, but when you wake up in the morning, he's like, this is the one thing. I just want you to try concentrate on this and remember this. He says, I want you to remember that I love you. That's it. He's like, the first thing, he's like, when you wake up, no matter what state you are in, he's like, I just want you to remember that I loved you. All right. So I, you know, fell asleep there because I had been crying for like four or five hours and convulsing and all this stuff was coming out, you know, in my body. And so when I woke up that morning, the first thing I remembered was what he told me was that somebody loved me. And that was the changing point that moved me from one side to the other. And so when I'm working with individuals, whoever they are, the one thing that I let them know, even if they've never seen me before and I'm talking to them and they're a survivor, and I tell them I know that love has a different meaning for us as survivors, but you need to know that the person who's talking to you right now cares about you because I do. And oftentimes, sometimes that is the one thing that a survivor needs to hear to move them. And I always just tell people, hold on for one more day because you just never know what the next day is going to bring. And that's what it was for me. Hold on for that one day and then wake up and realize that someone loved me and then it changed the next day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. You know, so often we're at that point in our life where um, it's a way out, you know, if we, if we commit suicide, you know. No more feelings of, of uh, pain because you're not getting beaten anymore. No more feelings of sadness. Um, no more being, you know, called all different kinds of names. And all the things that we go through, all the things, and the sexual abuse, oh, my God. No more of that. And, uh, you know, um, we need to hear that. Because I remember, I remember so vividly when I was cutting my wrist, um, no one told me to stop. The two people who would be the most important people in my life, who should have been, you know, my mother and my stepfather, okay, they didn't tell me to stop. And I remember I did stop for a second. I looked up at them, and I thought to myself, what kind of monsters are they? And then I continued, and then my friend saved my life, like I said. But the point is this. What you just said makes sense <clears throat> because it, it like, um, made me think. It made me think. If my mother or, or somebody in my family or even, you know, uh, said to me, we love you, uh, please don't do this. We love you. We'll get you help because that's what people yeah. need. They need help, right? Uh, wherever it comes from, they need help. Um then I wouldn't have continued to cut, and I would have felt better. <laughs> so I understand what you're saying. Um, it means it does mean something when someone tells you when you're at your very lowest, you know, hey, don't commit suicide because I love you. Okay. Yeah, and it touches that shame part, whether we realize it or not. That's what I'm saying. That's the subconscious shame part that is there. It's like when someone says that, that touches mm-hmm. that. 
and that boosts your value. It's like, wait a minute, like, wait, I have that value. Someone, someone actually loves me, right? And that's why I said a lot of people that are walking around, even though they say they may not have the shame, it's there mm-hmm. in a subconscious way. And when someone touches that piece and says, no, but you do have value, then it starts to actually address, I say, the shame filter that sometimes we see ourselves through subconsciously that we don't even know that's there. Well, that could well be. Now, I feel like with myself, because I was always told that I was so worthless, I had that fighting spirit in me, <laughs> okay? They used to call me the peroxide pirate, my friends, because I'd bleach my hair blonde, really, really, really blonde. And they, I was always rough, so I was like the peroxide pirate, so they'd tease me. But um, when people were mean to me, I, I instead of uh, feeling, you know, sad or bad, I would say, I'll show them. See, I had the opposite, I'll show them. Now, it's too bad that people have to feel that way, too, because we shouldn't be under stress like that where we feel like we have to prove ourselves. They're proving themselves by being ignoramuses by the way that they're, and mean, by the way that they're treating us. They've already proven themselves. So I would think to myself, I'll prove it to them that I am going to be something. I am something. I am worthy of love. This is what people have to learn. I am worthy of love, and I am able to give love even though they can't. See, yeah, oftentimes when I, when, I work with, when I work with clients in that state, especially if there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of defiance, what mm-hmm. I realize is that actually they're depressed. And oh, so yeah. the way that the depression, the way that the depression is being manifest is often through anger and defiance. Right. And so because that's the way that either they figured out to, to show it or to express it, or that's the way I'm going to say that helps them either to, to save face, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, if I'm depressed, people are going to think what's wrong with me, but I'm going to show it in the way of anger and defiance, right? So it's still being expressed in, in some way, but maybe expressed in a way that's a little bit more you know, acceptable or maybe a way that's either more justifiable. I run into that oftentimes when I'm working, when I'm working with clients, right? And so that's what we're doing, you know, we're, we're diving and trying to, to figure out. It's like, okay, so if they come in and they're just angry all the time, and, and so we're like, okay, so, you know, are there any other emotions that are going on inside of there? And then oftentimes what we find out is that that anger and that defiance is actually depression or just being sad but they haven't been given the opportunity to express, to emote, to actually right. feel that emotion in a safe place. Right, right. Well, that's so good. That's so good. And you, that's spot on because, you see, I was clinically depressed. Okay. When I finally decided to go for help, um, I was in my 20s, 30s, late, late 20s. And uh, I joined a church group, me, in a church group. <laughs> anyway, all right. But um, the church group had a lot of psychologists in it because it was so huge. It was so huge. It had 200 uh, people in their prayer group. And I was walking down the street, and this guy grabbed me, and he said, you're a mess. <laughs> he said that to me. And I said, yes, I am. I didn't. I didn't deny it because I was a mess. All right. 
So he took me inside. He started to speak to me. And because there were so many people in that prayer group, they came from all different walks of, of life, okay, all different mm-hmm. walks of life. So there were a few of them in there. And then I started to see them in a, a neighboring town, and they didn't even charge me, okay, which was a good yeah. thing. And uh, I didn't have anything to give them. So, um, but they guided me for quite some time, and then they said, Carol, you belong working in a service of some sort, and we feel like it's in the same type of thing that we do. I mean, you're a counselor, and you don't even know it. I said, whoops, okay. They even put a title on it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'll show them, okay, so it came out that way. But, um, you know, the point is that, uh, you know, thankfully – there are people that do care. You care. I care. Um, you know, Lori cares and Philip cares. We all, you know, people in NASCA care. All the groups that are out there, we certainly all care, and we should all work together. I don't believe in one group trying to outshine another group. That's stupid. It's better that we work together because uh, you get more progress that way, Okay. And I think that's what people have to learn is to, you know, stop thinking about yourself and, oh, am I doing well? Am I am I shining tonight? You know what I'm saying? Let's, let's work together. Let's work together and, and find solutions, you know, for people who um, have been where we've been. That's our way of giving back. That's our way of giving yeah, back. Yeah, and I think it's just, it's just realizing that, you know, that we're all pieces of the puzzle, Right. So someone comes to me, coaching may not be the venue for them, or that may not be at the time where that's, you know, right for them. Maybe it's later down the line, or, or maybe maybe it's not, right? And so that's why I'm always, you know, as I'm working with people, and we're kind of doing, a, you know, initial whatever consultation, we're trying to figure out, okay, so what's going to work best for you for where you're at right now? Now I even tell people, that doesn't mean that you can't come back and whatever do coaching later, but it's like for where you are right now, you need triage. Right, and so we need to find you a place where you can actually go through the triage because we need to keep you alive. So that's the thing, realizing that we're all bringing different pieces, different components, and that people are in different places, you know, when we see them. And so it's like not being afraid to say, hey, you know what, that's kind of out of my scope of practice, but let's see if we can find someone that can help you for where you're at right now. That's it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's very good, and I, I think that when people see, um, we're very sincere for one thing, okay? We're, we're not people, uh, you, you know, that gloat about this and gloat about that. And we're, we really have, um, we want so badly to help people, and it's genuine. And I think people can see that. They can see that. And... Um, and people out there who are so, so upset mentally, physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, all the things that go with it, because um, they have been so neglected or, or uh, uh, physically abused or, you know, emotionally. That's the hard one, isn't it? The emotional abuse is so hard, too. Um, you know, all the abuses that we speak about on the show, um, you know, when they see that someone really is genuine and they care um, they they have then like you that safe place to go. They have that safe place to go. I love the name. Of yeah, that, but that's, by the way, that's safe the hard thing though, because you know for us as survivors we've lost so much, and I think one of the first things 
on our list that's always hard for us is trust, right? So that I'm going to say that innate nature to trust is gone. So I'm suspicious of everyone. And so, you know, so oftentimes when I'm working with, with individuals, I'll say, well, you know, when, when you're ready to share with me, I know that you will, right? So I'm just trying to create the environment and I'm trying to create an environment where they can see, okay, there is trust, but I never force it on them. I let them share the information, you know, as they feel comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. And so then that way they're actually being empowered. So Mm -hmm. That's right. That's exactly right. But you see, you're giving them hope. You see, that's the big word right there is because we we feel one of the words that we use all the time um, is hopeless, that feeling of hopelessness. And um, by people, you know, who really genuinely do care and, and who work in the field, uh, you know, and those who even don't work in the field, um, you know, if, if you have that, you give them that sense of caring, that feeling of hope. Like you said before, um, let's talk about it tomorrow. There's always going to be tomorrow. Let's don't do it tonight. You know, in other words, let's do it tomorrow. Okay, let's talk about tomorrow because there's always tomorrow, and things can change. You're giving them a sense of hope and, and, and a little bit of vision, and and they're feeling trusting then to look forward because there is tomorrow. And so that's very good by using that, um, because so often people don't look for tomorrow. They've had enough. <laughs> I've seen yeah. enough, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Um, yeah, so they need to be able to have someone say, I love you. They need to have yeah. someone say, we'll talk more about it tomorrow, because then that shows that, you know, there's tomorrow, gives them a pathway of thinking, okay, tomorrow. And that saves them for today, all right? And then hopefully as days go by, they see that they are people of worth, and it's okay if they're angry, it's okay if they feel sad, it's okay. All these things are normal. Because when you've been horribly abused, you go through all of that, and it's completely normal. And then you get the help. You're able to envision uh, another day, another week, another month, another year, because you're on the healing journey, as we call it, the healing journey. And during the course of the healing journey, you see that, okay, yesterday was yesterday, today's today, and tomorrow is coming. So that yeah. helps you get and that's one of the reasons I. That's one of the reasons I yeah. enjoy doing going coaching because it's kind of focused it's focused on solutions but when we talk about hope you know I always talk to people when I'm talking about hope and they're like what is hope and I say well I desire I um, define hope with two components one is Mm -hmm. desire and expectation and I'm like well how does that how does that work I said okay so let's just think about the lottery here do you have a desire to win the lottery and they're like yeah yeah I have a desire to win the lottery I'm like do you expect to win the lottery and they're like, no. Okay, so I'm like, that's just a wish. <laughs> that's, that's a wish. That's just the desire piece of it, right? However, right. when hope, hope and those components are together. So if you have a desire to work through the issues and you have an expectation that we're going to work through those issues and get you to where you want to be, that's what mm-hmm. hope is. It's the desire plus the expectation. And so that's one right. of the reasons that for me, I, I use coaching because we have milestones so that we can see that we're reaching those certain expectations along the way so we have something to measure. Right, right, right. 
something to measure. See, that's important because, um, again, too, people, think they're, they're not thinking about measuring things or, or psychologically at that point when they're thinking about killing themselves because there is no more tomorrow. So if we give them the hope and, and the expectations that you're speaking about and, and so forth, then it gives them a chance to think, well, maybe, just maybe, tomorrow will be better than today. Right, okay. and right. And get some through that. Absolutely, I agree with that. Yeah. Lori, so that's why you, Lori, that's you, why you ask them, like, hey, where do you want to be a year from now after working with me? That's one of the things I ask people because that's there building that expectation that something different is coming. Yes, yes. And with you around, it's got to be good. Here, let me put the, let me put Lori on for a second and uh, see if she has something she'd like to add because we're running out of time, I think. I don't know. I like all of what was said tonight. I think that um, what you're doing, of course, is amazing. Even what Carol's doing is amazing. Um, I believe in pooling knowledge. I don't believe in splitting up and showing I've got this person and whatever. To heal someone, it takes a lot of people. And for you to speak with the the men, you took up a, a lot a lot of the problem and I want like more people who hopefully will hear you tonight to also get to where you are and actually help all of the men and all whoever they do. I don't know if they can go as far as you because I think you're amazing with all the schooling that you've gone through um, and all the techniques that you use. That shows me how intelligent you are. But you've definitely made an impression tonight and I'm like looking forward and I hope you do come back. Uh, you're definitely an uplifter. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. And and it's so true, you know, because um you know, sometimes people they don't know how to take compliments and stuff. They don't believe it quite themselves. They know that they're um they're a lot better today. And then they were yesterday, and then they, they know they can see, you know, the goodness that they've done. But still in all, sometimes, because we're survivors and we're still, you know, a couple stones away from being, you know, totally, you know, healed. Do you think people can be totally healed? What do you think on that one, 100%? Well, so that's the thing, though, like even what you're explaining, so that's still mm-hmm. part of the shame. Right, even being able to receive a compliment. Now, if you would have yeah. asked, if you would have gave me a compliment like years ago, I'd be like, no, no, that's not me, <laughs> because that's still part of that shame filter. I was still looking through that that shame filter. Now I'm at the point where I can accept that and say, thank you for seeing that yeah. in me. Whether I see it myself or or not, I can accept that someone else does see that. See, now he just showed me something. Lori, I have shame in me yet. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome what I just heard. Oh, yeah, I know. He's he's he's, he's amazing. I like having him on. And I'm not going to wait a full year. I mean, maybe 10 months. At the most, we usually wait a year, okay, before we have someone back on. But, uh, you know, you're like, um, you give such a good, positive feeling, you know, to people. And I think this world, this country, especially right now, needs a lot of pep rallies going on. We need a lot of people who give hope, okay? <laughs> you know, and and uh, you have that, and I have this too. I, I have a tremendous sense of humor, okay? And I think you do too. I can sense it. 
and I'm, I'm always able to laugh and genuinely laugh. I don't know why, but I am, and I'm glad I have it. I think that's another one of my things that uh, saved me from, uh, you know, continuing on to want to kill myself because I do see a lot of humor in things. And I even see humor in myself. I can laugh at myself today when I do stupid things, and I do stupid things at times. What are you going to do? So, you know, it's um, we grow, we can heal, we can heal, and we do heal. And with proper guidance, you know, teaching us along the way and giving us hope, you know, along the steps of recovery, um, we get there. And uh, then we're meant to be who we're meant to be, and we are who we are meant to be, okay? And today, like, I love myself today. Um, I believe you love yourself today, do you not? Do you love yourself? Yeah, I do. And, you know, but there are times, sometimes, like I said, it might be triggered by something, and, you know, there it is again. But the thing is, Mm -hmm. now I've learned to identify, okay, what is that? Like, oh, okay, I'm feeling a little bit of the shame right now, okay? But then that's when I, as I started working through the things, okay, but what's true? What's like, and as you start moving yourself kind of pretty much through cognitive therapy is kind of what that is, and then you start to, to realize. And that's why it's important to have, I'm going to say, the evidence to support the table, okay? I call them the pillars that are holding up the table, the evidence. You know, this is when you have to allow what other people are saying that, wow, you're a kind person, you're a loyal person, Right, and you have to be able to accept that. And I always, I have kind of this saying that um, when we're talking about something, everything comes from an external source. But when you mm-hmm. take it in, you believe it, and you accept it, it becomes an internal force. And so right. that's the thing. I have to believe when someone says, "You know what? You're lovable." And if I take I that in and believe are. that, yes. accept that, yeah, well, thank you, right. <laughs> well, then that, that external source, now I take it in, and now it becomes the internal force that moves out of me, right? And so that, right. that shows that we're all connected. Right, and we are connected. And now we have to get disconnected because we're going to get disconnected. <laughs> the show's oh. over. <laughs> Listen to me. Um, I want to have you back as soon as I can, okay? Um, and Bill will right. decide when that is. It might be, oh, be quiet. I know it's only 10 seconds. i got to go. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for coming on, and thank you, Lori, as usual, and, and, and Philip, thank you for calling in, and everybody out there listening. This is scan number 3305, 3305, and this is Thomas Edward, Okay. So if you want to hear again, you can go into the archives. Everybody, good night. Stay safe. And um, look out for each other. That would be a good thing to do. Okay? Good night now. Good night. Good night. night. Thank you. Good night. You're welcome. Love Talk Radio.